You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good morning. This is 3CR and this is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Haywood and with me in the studio is Emma Hurd, landscape architect and horticulturalist, Pete from White House Nursery based in Ashbourne near Woodend and Ben from Treasured Perennials in Druin in Gippsland. <laughs> Lost it for a minute there. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Good morning Virginia. Good morning. And we've had the garden show this week. Yes, back at back at the Melbourne Flower Garden Show. What a what a wonderful thing! Have you gentlemen been along? Yeah, we went yesterday. Um, it was a fair. There's certainly a, there's a trend. Yeah. Going, I think, with it. So uh, I found there was a lot of sort of succulents and indoor plants there. Yeah. So yeah. A friend of mine messaged me and said, "Oh, I think I'm at the Ligularia Appreciation Society <laughs> show. I do love Ligularia, though." Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. So. I thought there was a noticeable change in that there's not nearly as many perennials. True. Um, I, I noticed that. I went. I was spent all week in hospital. I got out of hospital at two o'clock and I was at the flower show on Friday by four. <laughs> so. Gosh, that's commitment, isn't it? Well, it shows how bored I was. <laughs> did you have any standout gardens that you loved? I did like some of the gardens and I particularly liked a couple of the student gardens. Mm. There were also a couple I loathed. Mm. Um, but yes... There's always a mixed bag, isn't there? And and I find often I'm most critical of plant choices in terms of combinations and also, oh, well, that's going to get massive, you know? I agree with that. I, I reckon it's uh, the whole concept is beautiful, mm. um, but plant selection is completely, it's not right. Yeah. So, but, that, but that is the nature, isn't it? It is, of, yeah. of a disp- I mean, I've been to Chelsea and Hampton Court in because I lived in London for so long. And you, you just see ridiculous things. You see beautiful gardens yeah. that are full of things that will die as soon as it turns cold. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's unfair that I'm so critical in some ways because, you know, there's only a certain amount of stock that, that designers have access to and of a certain size, so they're doing the best they can and, and all the providers are doing the best they can. But, but you know, Cassonia. Yeah, I saw that one. Lots of cassonias. Well, you know, I I was working in a private part of the botanic gardens around one of the houses and I heard this crack and I said to everyone, I think we should move. Oh, no, it'll be all right, it'll be all right. I made everybody move. And this 70-foot cassonia lost a branch and I didn't even recognise it as a cassonia because it was so big. Mm. I just didn't recognise it. Yeah, well, I'm glad you moved. <laughs> yes, yes. Did anybody go and have a look at the flowers with COVID and the imported flowers come into the country? Is, yeah. is there still a good selection of Australian-grown flowers or what's going on there? Anybody? 
Well, there seem um, Crisco chrysanthemums had their big tent, which was not in the flower hall. Um, they always uh, are represented heavily, but I think and I think their chrysanthemums were on display amongst arrangements also. Um, I there were lots of roses. I'm not sure whether they were imported or not. Um, I imagine some of them were, to be honest, because some of them looked like the really big French ones. Yep. Um, and some beautiful Gloriosa lilies. So, yeah. They're not important. They're just difficult. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they're difficult. <laughs> um, lots of lots of Proteaceae this oh, year. Yep. Seem to be. There was a really beautiful display um, with... Uh, Osage oranges and uh, what looked like squash. So the really nice contrast of the lime green osage orange with the orange squash was really remarkable. Oh, I loved cool. that display. I that wish was I... in the hall. Yes, that was in the hall. And that got a place, didn't it? It did. It, it yeah. got a first place. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, I wish I could tell you the name of the, the florist. I should remember. But um, if you're out there listening, you did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't go into the hall. I'll go back today and I'll go into the hall today. Yeah, have a good look around. It's I've lovely. S- I've sort of, you know, again, because I haven't been well, I've limited the amount of time I was there mm. and sort of ducked off to the media tent to have a little rest every now and again. Yeah, fair enough. But um, I, I did enjoy it. I did miss um, Teslas. I did miss mm. country farm perennials. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm a perennial girl. Yeah, I do like the perennials as well. It was a shame they weren't there. I, I just think because because of COVID and because of a couple of years of sit-ups, I think nurseries have also changed what they're doing and how they're operating their businesses. So mm. some people have moved on from Mifkus, which is unfortunate, and it's a sign of the industry, as Ben was saying, with the succulents and the legal areas and things that are out there. So, so the whole industry through COVID has had a major shake-up, yeah. and, and we, within our company have found um, the online thing has, has pushed sales through the roof and maybe instead of going to Melbourne International and I haven't had any feedback and I haven't had a moment to pop down and have a look but this morning while I'm in town I'll go and have a look mm. um, I, I just think th- a lot of stuff has changed and I've certainly had some feedback that people have come out to us to have a bit of a look at what we're doing out there um, and, and, and people have said something along the similar lines of how not disappointed but it's a shame that the groups of plants seem not to be represented any longer through one thing or another. Well, of course, it is very expensive. Mm. Yeah. Which is, and uh, I mean, although nurseries have sold lots, mm. there is also that hit that um, has happened because of COVID. But yeah. it, it's not just the expense of getting through the main gate, it's the expense of site fees. The site fees mm. are enormous. Uh, enormous. And and um, no, that's $10,000 $10, $10, site fee in Mifkus, and a lot of people are going to say, well, what? I know of one person that's paying that for not a huge site, but a decent site. And, and the last years that we did Mifkus, um, I think our site fees hit about six, $7,000, something mm. like that. So that's um, an awful lot you've got to sell before you eat your Vegemite sandwich. Absolutely. That is a lot. Although I talked to Jane from Tonkin Bulbs, who's there and yeah. they basically sold out on Wednesday 
Oh, fantastic. And had to go back and just get a whole lot more stock and sold out again on Thursday. Yeah, theoretically fantastic, but a huge hustle to go back and get more stock and, and, and had reset. To, had to do it again Yeah, on Friday. so That's quite stressful, I imagine. <laughs> but it's also very exciting. Yeah, because oh, they're proud of them. Yeah. And people come up to her from 3CR, listeners have come up too. Yeah, She's I'm really not surprised. Liked. I'm not surprised. She does a great job. Yeah, she was pleased with that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought, oh, I, sorry. I, I find it's uh, packaging as well, see, because people aren't going there just for an hour or, uh, or you know, a couple of hours. It usually takes a couple of hours, like a few hours to, to do, to walk yeah. around. So it's the size of the, the product you actually got to carry. That's, That's very true. Um, people have to bring their own bags sometimes or, yeah. or a little... I see people walking around with trolleys quite a bit, so some people come prepared. They're not the ones that are hopping on the trams. It's, it's like the trams and public transport is a major concern when you're doing MIFCAs, not to over, oversize your plants because they have to be a little easier to carry things that people can hop on a tram or a train with. Yeah. So yeah. we've had, I've had people approach us to, to do the show but it means we've got to change our whole pot size and, and sort of really just prepare for this show. So It's really yeah. a lot to think about as a, as a business, like whether it's worthwhile putting in that much time and energy to creating a bespoke product. It's, it's weeks of work before and it's a week set up and then it's a week to pull down and put the stock back away. Mm-hmm. Then you have to have every pot individually priced because you have to make it cash and carry um mm. simply that's uh, during during unfortunately with Mifkas during the first day or two it's so big and it's so busy as growers we don't get a chance to hop around and mingle and talk to people mm. because you have to recoup those site costs and you have to pay wages and then you have to pay your wholesale costs you've mm. got to take all that into consideration it's not just all profit um mm. so so i mean as, as much of a fun event as it is it is a victim on those first days of its own circumstances just because you don't have the time to to get to know your customers and really talk to them enjoy them and there's at the moment, for the popular ones, there's too many there for you to be able to talk to them. For, I yes. mean, I didn't get much chance to talk to Jane and Kirill because there's just people busy, pouring busy. in. They'd be moving you on to get to the next person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, they're too nice to do Yeah, that. Jane is, isn't she? And I guess that's the truth of the matter why you see so many of the large players there year after year because they can afford to be there and, you know, make profits. The, the smaller um, little... Boutique nurseries might find it difficult to be represented there. Maybe we need to create a, a, um, a collaboration. Combine, a combine yeah, of, a little collaboration. A that would be quite nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> we, of Pay course, we have spot. we have got something coming up which you two will both be at. Yes, which is the Yarra Valley. Oh, fantastic! Yarra Valley Plant Fair. It's it's held. It's the twenty, the twenty third and twenty fourth of April. So please book your tickets online. The Larkman family put a lot of work into it. Um, they do the spring show and this autumn show. And there are different groups of nurseries. So if you went to the spring show, you might see some different nurseries at the autumn show. Um, I think Clive and I got about three to 4,000 people out there last year. It was fantastic. Um, we Both Ben and I were there and you were there and it was. I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. And there are, there are large, about 40 sites, I think, from, from landscaping, rock work, through to soil supplies, through to perennials, bulbs, trees, shrubs, the rarities, the unusuals, 
I think there were some hanging baskets or some, some indoor plants there last year. Not a lot, which I can't say upset me. I mean, I'm, you know, the, this one of the things I really noticed with Mifcus is it's full of indoor plants and hanging plants and succulents, none of which I buy. And I try and be interested, but I'm not massively interested. Well, yeah, indoor plants were really big this year again. I do see the trend waning slightly. I feel like it's reached its pinnacle about two for the time ago, being. About two years ago in Fitzroy, you would see a queue that went down the street, round the corner, and you'd think, what the hell is that about? It yeah. would always be indoor plants. Yeah. I mean, uh, I just think maybe it's reached its top, but I may be speaking too soon. <laughs> I, I think it's what old is new again. I think back in the 70s and the 80s, we couldn't get enough indoor plants, mm. and, and boy, here they are back again. Yeah. Well, I do know an indoor plant supply that's a e-commerce business and they're um expanding to outdoor plants currently so i think it's always interesting interesting. yeah i think it's always interesting seeing um and they're not necessarily saying that indoor plants are ending but they're seeing expanding i I wonder if it's the fact that there are more and more wholesalers growing more and more indoor Mm. plants because they're chasing the dollar through the indoor market which is what happens within the nursery industry somebody sees someone making some money out of a line and they're quite happy to Mm. jump on and 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 ride the bandwagon so maybe the sales are still there it's just there's more and more product being pumped into the marketplace yeah i think you're right and a a good time to diversify your your stock Mm -hmm. offerings so i did notice something interesting yesterday in I think one of the dis- displays that they were showing I think uh, how to use indoor plants um, and one of the selections was basically they were using epimediums as an indoor plant which I think you've got to be careful of it's not an actual indoor plant yeah. um, because it, you start, I think within a couple of weeks it'll certainly sort of suffer from spider mite and yeah it'll just start really thinning out. And, You're so yeah. right. Um, I, I think that the plant selection is something I think people really need to keep an eye on, on instead of trying to follow that trend on what other people are trying to do because I think some things just don't work yeah. inside. So. It's, fi- it's fine to take an outdoor plant and pop it inside for a day or two. I mean, at the end of the day, an indoor plant is basically an outdoor plant yeah. that's native somewhere around the world, the warmer was, climbs, and we bring say. them inside. So an epimedium would be okay as an indoor plant for a day or two. It's like a cyclamen. You need to whack them out at night, and, and the epimediums, they, they all... Okay, if you want to have them inside and have the foliage look great for a night or a day or two, then pop them outside and give them that week outside where they can recover and then bring them back in again. There are no real rules as to what you can do and how you want to do it, but you can't take a cold climate plant and whack it inside and expect it to perform as it would as if it was outside. Mm. Yeah, you're both 100% right. I was going to say that, truth be told, there's no such thing as an indoor plant. They're all just plants that we've decided, oh, yeah, this will make our little microclimates inside. And sometimes it works and sometimes it really doesn't. Except I was staying with my daughter last night and since I got out of the hospital and they'd talk about filling the house up with plants I mean there's indoor plants everywhere and they're wanting to put some of the big ones outside I'm going no and she said but this is a ficus and I said yes well there's that great those great big ones in the botanic gardens they're a different sort of ficus Sylvie Mm. and even they come from um Brisbane yes and that is tropical it will not survive the winter outside or if it does it'll be very unhappy I do grow a ficus for uh for David, he's uh, owns the Broughton Hall, the Garden Ginnivik, 
um, the ficus dremenopsis. Yes. So, and how does it survive for you uh, outside? I only take that out at the hothouse uh, in summer. That's right. it. So for the rest of the year, it's in the hothouse. Because I see so, it being sold a lot. Yes, yeah, and very expensive sort yes. of plant as well. But um, I think naturally, because it's not an easy plant to propagate either. Right. So, I mean, if I put down, say, five five cuttings, I'm lucky to probably get one out of it. Or I could be waiting nearly 12 months probably before it actually decides to, to, to take root. And so. do you have growing tips for it? Like some people say, or oh, water with warm water or, you know, certain things like that. I'm not sure of the the efficacy of that tip but whether you have specific ideas yeah i find through especially through like mid sort of spring to pretty well like now you want to make sure there's plenty of moisture for it but Mm. then the rest of the year you don't even water it yeah it'll because it it does hold a lot of moisture in the in the stems because it's quite fleshy that Mm. sort of suckle sort of the type of um uh, growth um so in winter it's not sort of producing well, it's not photosynthetic as much, so yeah. it's not going to re- require that much moisture. Wonderful. So, and, and, and that tip about watering with the warm water, that's, that's basically coming from the fact that the plant and the indoor plants, root zones, are heating up to, to whatever the indoor temperature is. And in some of the areas, if you take your mains water straight out of the cold tap, and it will be particularly cold, especially in the middle of winter, even in the city, you're giving the plant root system a shock, which can sometimes cause leaf drop and all the rest of it, the mm. things that go with a quick shock to plants. So, so okay. that's where that tip for the warm water has come from. And yeah. It does work on some plants. Yeah, yeah. I found particularly Phalaenopsis orchids, and um, not that I advocate growing them a lot, but uh, they're popular, and uh, Ficus longifolia seems to like the warmer water. <laughs> This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward and with me is Emma, Peter and Ben. We have been talking about the um, Mythicus, the flower show. And if you would like to talk to us, you can talk to us on 94190155 or you can talk to Doug on the off-air line on 94198377. Or you can text us on 0488 809 855. And if you wish to email next week's program, gardening at 3cr.org.au. I've got a few announcements which I might just whip through because it's some people will be up and might be listening. Um, Open Gardens Victoria is having a talk at Mueller Hall at the Botanic Gardens on Thursday the 7th. It's going to be Tim Entwistle, who is the director of the of the Botanic Gardens, Uncle Shane Charles, who's the co-chair of Reconciliation Victoria, and Andrew Laidlaw, who's the landscape architect of the Botanic Gardens and Global Gardens for Peace. And they're going to be talking about the history of the Botanic Gardens, von Mueller. They're going to be talking contemporary concerns for Botanic Gardens and where these two meet. So I think it'll be a very interesting discussion myself. And Mount Macedon Hort Society has is 100 years old, which Stephen is very proud of, and they have a botanic art show from the 2nd to the 17th of April. They also have an all-day workshop, Dreaming Gardens, on the 21st of April, 10 till 4, with Michael McCoy, Simon Rickard and Stephen. 
So, and there's a series of other things that they're also doing. So have a look, Mount Macedon Horticultural Society, and it'll tell you all the different things that you can do. Um, coming up is Kabloom, which is Tesla's Festival of Flowers. That's on from April the 2nd to the 25th. Tesla's are based at Sylvan, at the back of Sylvan Dam. That's another one, Tesla's, you can just look up online. And then, of course, we have the event, the Yarra Valley event. Does it have an, a, a website on the ticket? www.yarravalleyplantfair.com.au And are you having a Begonia Festival Look, at the Look, we, we are in the final stages of our Begonia Festival. Um, we, we launched it the first weekend in February this year um, and we have gone through until... Uh, we're, going, uh, we, we're running current ads saying we're closing early. We, we had thought we'd keep it open until Mother's Day, but um, at the moment it's looking great. There's probably 5,000 flowers there to see. Um, I think there's about 500 plants in there on display, which is part of my collection. Um, but unfortunately, I'd rather end it on a high than have it fizzle out, especially if people are coming. And, and we've, had, uh, uh, we've, we've had people come from as far as Warrnambool, Leangatha, um, Ballarat, of course, um, and we've had them come from Wodonga. Um, so, wow. So last year when we launched, we, it, people have probably forgotten. I was in here last year talking about me with this brand new idea for me and all the rest of it. And, and I went off and um, Steve Ryan saw my collection some years ago and said Pete what the hell are you going to do with this and I thought yeah he's right and Jesse and I were talking one night and in the middle of COVID we thought Steve's right let's throw it open let people come along have a look and have some fun there so with our first year I think we had about 500 people come through and have a look and we thought you know what for my little hobby I kind of thought that's okay we put a bit more of an advertising budget together again, and I know Steve has certainly given me some publicity out there, as has the Macedon Rangers Tourist Commission, and a whole bunch of other councils have got on board, plus garden societies. To date, we've had just under 4,000 people come through. That um, is fantastic. And, and it's a free event. We don't charge. This is my hobby, and, and I just like people to come and have a look and share my passion. I mean, but I presume they can buy begonias. Oh, they? look, there's, there's still plenty for sale, and I've, got to, and I've got to have some for the Clive Larkman's weekend in the Yarra Valley. Um, so we'll make sure there's a good selection. But, but for people to be dragged so far, for Melbourne, it's still an hour and, what, 20 minutes out there. Um, so I'd like people to come and have a look while it's looking at its best, not on the wane and trying to milk it for all it's worth. You know. And how do they go? They go to Wood End? Okay, so um, head to Wood End and the, we've, the, the signs are out at the traffic lights in Wood End. So you turn left at Wood End, follow it out through Ashbourne Road. We're about seven kilometres, I think the sign says. It might be seven and a half kilometres. Just look for the letterbox. You can't miss my letterbox. It's this great big White House looking letterbox. So... Um, you yeah, know, we have a whole bunch of fun out there. And, and later on, I've got some stories of the locals that I have met. And I just want to share some stories of people out there doing some really exciting things in the community that never, ever get a shout out. But it's interesting to talk to my local community and, and, and um, we'll discuss some of the things that they do out there. It is, it is important, isn't it, to actually make those links? I, I had no idea how many 
people locally were interested in begonias and gardens generally because we're a mail order nursery. We don't really have public on the property. Um, so my, my, my whole philosophy with the begonias was just to throw it open and meet the locals. Um, and not only did we meet the locals, but we met the towns far away. And, and it's, it's amazing the community spirit that COVID has dragged out and, and, and out in our little community. And we're talking Ashbourne. It's a hamlet of maybe eight houses. There is nothing more to Ashbourne than that. Um, you don't have a big coffee shop and a pub. We have no pubs. We have no coffee shops. It really is bring your own thermos. Or go and have something to eat in Wood End, yeah. and there's plenty available in Wood End. Um, and, yeah, it, it's just a fun event. It's just, just a fun event for us and um, a good thing to do. And Ballarat also does begonias, don't they? Okay, so the difference between myself and Ballarat is everything in Ballarat is are named varieties. So I have grown tubers begonias since the 1980s, um, and then through one case, one scenario or another, stopped growing quantities of tubers begonias until about 10 years ago. And I thought, oh, I'll just go and buy some tubers begonias and start again and have a great collection quickly. Well, that wasn't available. There's, I, th- I think I could manage to find eight or 10 or a dozen plants through Ballarat. So I joined the Begonia Society and I still couldn't get the quantity I wanted to get. And it, it wasn't with the view back then of opening and showing the public. It was just with the view of me enjoying my collection and my hobby. Anyway, to, to cut a really long story sh- into a couple of minutes, I started. To, I, I fluked a couple of flowers from named clones that actually set some pollen, and I thought, "Bing, that's the I'm a, I'm, I'm a propagation the person. That's all I've ever done. I'm 55, and I've never done anything else in the nurse, in, in in any other industry. Just propagate plants. So we we started to pollinate, and and then we started to sow seed, and we won't go into the de- the, the the gory details about. Um, pollination and picking seed and sowing seed but um, I had some disasters from my first batches because my parents are still alive in Tasmania so we'd pop over for Christmas and nobody watered the seed trays and of course you get a heat wave and what happens you get home to this grey fuzz on top of the trays and a bunch of little corpses Um, but but, but, um, fortunately that allowed me to only tube up a few of each cross um, because when you ever make your seed crosses or, or hybridise, you never ever know what the results are going to be because you end up going down the track of F1s and F2s, which are, they, you know, they're not going to throw like their parents. So instead of me potting up thousands and thousands of plants, I only got a chance to pot up uh, 20 or 30 out of each cross for the first few years, being the slow learner I am. But it gave me a chance to sit back and see how good or how bad the crosses were without doing a thousand of each and then as Ben would be able to tell you you throw them all out because they're they're no good and by no good I mean they're not special but well not a, not even that I mean some of the crosses we're getting are singles and doubles but there there is absolutely no come on Emma you don't be don't be shy come on wow. grab, grab some flowers they are um, huge. Can that, I have look, the, red, the deep red? Oh, you've got to I have, like that deep red one. You've got to have that red one. I do. So, so what, what started to happen was the bad crosses, I only had to sacrifice 20 or 30 pots. And, and f- from, from where I have come from with my crosses, if it's a single flower just with four or five petals, there is absolutely no point me thinking there's even any commercial reason to keep going with that cross so you get that out and that it becomes compost 
Um, oh, come on, guys. There's plenty. There's plenty here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm handing them around. They're so, so, so beautiful. So, we, so we, look, we kept going with our crosses, and then I decided, well, tuberous begonias are not only um, standards, but they also come in hanging baskets. So then I started to, to hybridise the hanging baskets. And, and we got some fantastic baskets out there as well. Um, so so it's, it's just, I've had a whole bunch of fun. Come on, Ben. I'm showering you in flowers, mate. <laughs> what, what, I, what I can't believe is this, this deep red one, which I asked for, which is now sitting in my hand. I've just sent a photo to Lizzie, hoping she'll put it on, on um, Facebook. And it's as big as my hand, and it's not one of the big ones in the box. Okay, so there, so we because we're so far down the track. So a begonia, tuberous begonias. Begonias are broken into lots of different groups. Okay, so they come in tuberous begonias, cane begonias, rex begonias, and the annual begonias you see out in the parks and gardens and in in people's in, in gardens generally. Um, so the tuberous begonia will start flowering from middle of January and, it, and it'll keep going until oh, mid to late April, May. But one of the, the downsides of the tuberous begonias are at the start of the season, the flowers are nice and big and six, eight, nine inches isn't unusual. But we only have one or two flowers per plant. And because we're so gung-ho back then, the girls, Jess and I, will get out in, the, in my display house and we'll take the female flowers off. So, Emmett, see, see the side beside mm. your, the, big, yeah. the big blousy one? Yeah. That big, pretty blousy one, that's the bloke. And then see those little boring things beside it? The little boring things are actually rather large. They're the yeah. girls. But it's the like, composition it, of it, the, the stem, the stem structure is so lovely. Okay, so, so with... I'm, I'm not sure if I'm right if I say all begonias. I'll, I'll just talk for tuberous begonias at the moment. With tuberous begonias, there will always be, to the left or the right of the main bud, which is the, the big boy, um, the girls. So if you look at the back of those little four or five flowers, you'll see the ovaries there. Mm. Okay, they're the girls. And that, that one that Virginia's holding up there, there's another male coming beside that one and then a little girl. And I think beside that new male above there, there should, could even be some little girls coming there. It's yes, just how they there are. are. So there the are. later in the season, although you think they're big flowers now, the later in the season we get their flowering down in size because what we're sacrificing now for, um, for, for quality of flowers, we're making up for in quantity, just the sheer numbers. Um, some of the plants up there are carrying 30 flowers each at the moment. Um, and some of the baskets would have 100 flowers on them. Um, How amazing. Well, look, yeah, it's like the Will best you... view from the whole place is when you're up on the stepladder watering the baskets, which I didn't take into consideration when I put them up in the room. <laughs> but um, it's, it's, you look across the tops of the baskets, and I, and I guess there's 150 baskets up in the roof, and you're actually looking across, Then the, the, I think there's eight or seven tiers of, of tuberous begonias in rows, um, and it's just this wall of colour. And will they still be, some of them still be in flower? for the Yarra Valley Plant Fair? Okay, so what I did um, have learnt to do over the last three or four years is to progressively pot. So we're going to end our plant show, I'm, I'm just going to digress for a second, early because I am running out of quality plants for sale and for my display. So this year I have progressively potted. 
um, and I've targeted a couple of hundred plants for the Yarrow Valley Plant Fair, which I didn't pot until middle of February. I think my record's a bit correct. Um, so we'll still have a nice display, and they're just coming into flowering. So their flowers are going to be nice and big. And it's and, and although a tuberous begonia is a light sensitive plant, they're not a, so plants fall into two categories: light sensitive, heat sensitive. Northern Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere. Tuberous begonias fall into the light sensitive plant. So is the daylight now? Where is, are they from? They're from Bolivia and the Andes. Okay, so in their natural environment, they're a mountainous plant. They can take the cold, but it's the daylight, so they go into shutdown like a lot of like the autumn trees and everything. As the daylight decreases, the tubers draw back in what they need. Hence the, the, the yellow foliage, the stems fall off. They go to sleep over the winter. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's um, the basis of the tuberous begonia. I think I'm going to get some begonias. I've mm. never had begonias. I think the time like, has come. Are they like a succulent that'll actually, during the daytime, they don't, they're not photosynthetic? They're actually more photosynthetic of a nighttime? No. So they absorb no. The, the rays of the UV rays and then it start sort of producing the sugars of a night. No, no, yeah. they, they photosynthesise. During the day. All day. Yeah. Um, they they are, are like a succulent only so far as they'll hang from rocky crevices in their natural environment. So they'll hang out of rocky crevices. They're an understory plant, so they've got to be protected from the hot sun. Um, you look at those flowers. I mean, even though man has intervened with those flowers... Um, or my parents would call me boy, have intervened <laughs> with those flowers, they still won't take the hot sun. So a tuberous begonia is typically, as I think with most begonias, understory plants. That means they've got a canopy overhead and um, they're protected from the hot sun. Can I ask, some of them, their petals and their foliage even tend to glitter almost? Okay, now a lot of a lot of that is throwback to mother. Um, Begonia boliviensis is the mother, and she had um, marbled foliage, and, and you'll see begonias with some quite interesting lines through them. Um, so that's mum, and mum also, Emmett, was exactly the same colour you're holding there, that big orange one, that fluffy orange one. Um, but she only had four or five petals. That's all mum was until humans intervened. And humans, I think, I think tuberous begonias made their way into Europe about the middle 17th century, I think. Um, and then humans being what we are, we, we started to cross them with other begonias. And hence, that's where the modern hybrid tuberous begonias have come from. Fantastic. Thanks for telling me. There you go. And tell me about succulents. I didn't know succulents didn't photosynthesise through the day. Yeah, well, it's actually um, it's a mechanism of actually because they're full of moisture. So if uh, during the the hot period of the day, they um, they tend to shut down. Uh, so because if they're actually getting if they're actually losing a lot of moisture during the day, um, you'll find that they because there's not much moisture in the ground where they, they originally come from, um, they they will end up losing too much. Uh, and so what they do is they shut themselves down during the day and then tend to tend to store everything, take all the UV ray during the day and then store it and then start photosynthesising in the night time. So it starts producing the sugars and, and doing all the gas exchanges during the night. So they have so a little not, battery there for yeah, the so sun. It's not actually, yeah, so it's not using as much en- as energy as they would during the day if they all, if, you know, because there's no moisture there in the ground. So, yeah. Well, that sounds really interesting. Uh, I'm Virginia and this is the 3CR Garden Show. If you'd like to give us a ring, ring on 9419 0155 or text us on 0488 
809-855-8055. And Ben, what have you brought in? So this is a new one that I've actually just starting to grow. It's called uh, Muskia, uh, Wollastonii. So it's uh, in that Campanula, uh, Campanula Aceae family. Um, and it, uh, it originally comes from um, Madeira. So off oh. the yeah the off the islands off uh, the Morocco and, Ma- Ma- Madeira is one of those places I really wish to go to. It yeah. just sounds wonderful. Yeah, but this one here is actually a threatened species. Yes. Yeah. So and that's the only island where it actually comes from. So it doesn't come from anywhere else. Um, There's plants in that area that come from just one bay. Yeah. They're, you know they're incredibly. I mean they're endemic maybe to just one. One cove. Yeah, and that's one of this is one of them. Ah. Yeah. So and that's yeah. Um, and luckily, most of them are beautiful enough that there there are appearing in cultivation, which is good because mm. this is actually in the natural environment is a threatened species. So, but I have noticed it is elsewhere in the world, which is in cultivation, um, because it does it is a plant it will produce thousands of seeds. So when it actually starts, uh, it it'll take a couple of years to flower. Uh, and then once it flowers, it actually dies off. Um, but when it does flower, it does produce thousands of seeds and, and offsets. So, so how, how big does it get? I don't know anything so, about the plant at all. How no, big does it get? How, how wide does it get? What colour is the flower? So the flower, is, it, it's a yellow flower. Okay. Uh, but you can get an offset, which will actually show like a throw off, like an orangey colour flower as well. So, so, that's, so, so from seed from the same plant? Or, yes. Okay, yeah. so they vary a bit? Yeah, most oh, cool. of them will be yellow. Yep. So, um, but yeah, you might just get the odd one will be that. It'll just throw that odd colour out. Um, but the flower itself, it's uh, probably so. It's about nearly, oh, probably about sort of five, cent, seven centimetres in, in width, and it's that campanula flower. But it's not a complete full petal. It, the the petal actually tends to fold back on itself, and yeah, and shows its sort of stamens and the stigma. Um, so is it a solitary flower or a spike? Or? It's a spike. Okay, Yeah, spike. yeah so it's, okay. it's a yep. massive spike, actually. So the spike's probably a good nearly about 60 centimetres in wide. Oh, wow. Uh, and the flower spike can get up to about a metre. Uh, oh, it sounds that's wonderful. Just, that's just the flower spike itself. So, But the plant overall, you're probably looking at about sort of two, two, two and a half metres in height. And does so. the plant die after it flowers? It does, yes. Yeah. So as soon as it finishes flowering, um, yeah, that's it. It'll, it'll set seed and then dies off. So, mm. But so. you can collect the seed, I imagine. Yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. it'll just fla- it'll come up Self-seed. around the flower. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, I mean, around the plant. Yeah. Do, you, do you cutting grow those bins, or do you just do them from seed? Just seed. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I'll actually have some for when we do uh, Yarra Valley. Uh oh. So <laughs> uh, only very limited numbers. So until I can get my the ones in, in the garden to flower, and then I can sort of start. Yeah. Sort and, of getting and a ben, b- good produce. Tell uh, us the name again. So it's called uh, Muskia. Spelt. So it's M-U-S-S-C-H-I-A, yeah, Muskia. And then, um, so the... those of you that want to look it up, M-U-S-S-C-H-I-A. Mm. And those of you that want to buy it, you'll have to come to the Yarra Valley Garden Plant Show. And be early. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's something I think if... Um... And Ben's in the bottom he, corner. He won't have them left after about one o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to have lunch and have a meander up, you may miss out. <laughs> I must say, I do appreciate your plant labels that you use in all your plants because they're, they're small and compact and they they have just the right amount of information. Yeah, Kerry, my wife, she does that. So 
she does a lot of research on yeah, make sure everything was uh, it's a correct sort of spelling to um, you know heights and all those sort of things. So yeah, she does like fantastic oh, job and, oh, and she I does get a lot of it. a lot of people will come into our show and they absolutely do say they love our label because it's just straight to the point so and you can keep it yeah exactly yeah. that's the thing yeah. that irritates me with those big labels that yeah. you, you know you'd no more leave them in your garden than fly to the moon they're horrible yeah exactly i mean they're good yeah. for selling i can see that you know they've got a picture and there's lots of information but they you then have to write out a label and i mean i have people visit my garden so i want things labeled one of the problems with those great big labels you see of the promotional labels popped onto plants is if you leave your label on your plant and you're a little bit remiss with your watering so you're standing holding a hose, quite often the water will hit the label and it'll never ever go around your plant. And your plant will die. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a good point. That those, those and great I, big... in, terms of, in terms of sustainability, I can't imagine great big plastic labels is actually good for the environment. It's a sad indictment, isn't it, when we look across a, a batch of plants and the plastic stands out and the plants are so small they don't, they, they don't show themselves. That's a sad indictment on where the marketing's going, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. And the fact that an increasing number of people are not putting the real name of plants on. Mm. And I find that really irritating because if I'm not sure of the plant, I look it up, I see where it comes from, and that tells me about, you know, oh, it's from the high Andes. Actually, that, I won't let it get north wind. That modern trend, and I'm going to get on my high horse here, and, and I've been in the nursery industry for 40 years, so it's interesting when you go... I. When you go and buy a plant at a retail outlet, we won't name anybody, but it's interesting how quite often now on the promotional labels, not even the genus and species occurs. Mm. It's, it's just another reinvented plant with a, a name popped on it because it wasn't done last month, last year, last week, or within the production schedule. And I find that a sad indictment on, on where the nursery industry is going. Um, I'm sorry, that's me on my high horse. I'm a kind of an old-fashioned bloke that likes all these old-fashioned perennials. And um, just because it's new, it don't mean it's great. And many, many years ago, I was, I, I was at an IPPS conference and Will Ashbourne was doing a talk on... Um, on just because it's new doesn't mean it's any better and, and, and a few of the American delegates at that conference started to take him to task. And, and, and just because it is new doesn't mean it is any better than the old-fashioned plants that are out there. And quite a lot of those old-fashioned plants are wearing brand-new invented names just to try and um, get another slice of the market share. And I'm sorry for a whole bunch of people whose feathers I just ruffled, but um, they are the sad circumstances. I want names. I mean, when I started this, I, knew, I didn't know anything, and I've learnt along the way, and the way you learn is by having names. The best way to learn out... To, to learn how to grow a plant is to look up that genus and species. Then there'll be a cultivar name there. That's great. But once you know the genus and species, you can then look up country of origin. Mm. Country of origin will always tell you what climatic conditions that plant requires. And it still is true of Australian plants. Yep. You know, if you have plants from Western Australia growing in sand, then you might struggle a bit with some of the Yarra Valley and the thick clay. And out in, out in Massenden with a huge rainfall and a, a mountainous soils, they're not go and frosts, they're not going to survive. So there was something interesting we were, when we went to Europe. This is few years ago we uh we did the we went on the the cliff faces around uh the, was it the ring of Kerry in in ireland and what i noticed there they actually have like uh the primula vulgaris 
um, and it actually is a it's a coastal plant there and full sun so but here um, there's no other world I could grow that yeah in full sun because of that late afternoon sun that would just yeah would not well my my big thing with planting is will it take I mean you know you read European having lived in London for 20 years you read it and it says oh it must have afternoon sun or for me can it take north wind is my question mm. can it take next is can it take afternoon sun but the north wind is the, the north and the northwest wind of summer that's our killer and, no. and that's an interesting fact when you go um, the European summer. So, so when you're translating from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, you need to work in seasons, not months, because January in Australia isn't January summer in most all of Europe. Mm. But, um, uh, but also our January is not the same as the equivalent August in over there. No, you need to work seasonal. It's, mm. it's, and you know, for me, the whole time I lived in Europe, I hated February, <laughs> hated it. It was cold, it was dark, I was fed up. I went to work in the dark, I came home in the dark. I hate February here. This February I didn't hate as much as usual, but I hate February, 40 degrees. Mm. I, can't, I can't go outside. It's the same effect. Yeah. It's just at the different ends. Oh. Sorry, Emma. I... No, that's fine. I just thought I would offer a design and horticultural analogy. I like to think, you know, we're given from our clients briefs about how to design a landscape, but the plant is sort of giving us a brief with its, you know, its origin and its its genus and species name. So I think that's really important to understand that information about the plant before you design with it especially. We have a message. Lynn's got a rubbish collection coming up and she wants to know if she can prune her citrus and olives now to get it into the rubbish collection. Now, I would. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's that's reasonable. One of the things I loved at the at the Mifkus was there are all these cloud pruned olives. <laughs> I've never seen an olive cloud yeah, pruned before. I, I think um, yeah, the supplier's done a great job on those cloud pruned olives. And and another one was a really beautiful espaliered olive with a circle cut out in the middle. And I thought that was really cool. They they did it in sections and then joined them together. At the show. So olive, olives were a special feature, I feel. Yes, so I think with the citrus tree, make sure it's not a hard prune. Mm. Yeah, it, it has to be a light prune. For if this time do, of yeah, year. Yeah, if you want to do a hard prune, because citrus trees you can prune really hard. You can prune them back to it, mm. to like a, just a metre stump. Should, above the yeah. graph. Yeah. Always above the graph. Yeah, yeah. Um, because if you prune it really hard now and you get that real soft tissue um, mm. we are sort of starting to get in those cooler cooler nights now and it only especially, takes one frost and a little bit and she Lynn, doesn't like, yeah. Lynn doesn't say where she lives yeah, so especially if she's in, yeah. in climate conditions yeah. yeah if she's somewhere a bit colder where there's frost yes you definitely don't want young growth to mm. hit the frost that's a really although good I think the olive will survive yeah the olive will survive they're pretty what, shape what do they tend to prune citrus onto uh, graft onto. I mean, graft onto. Sorry. <laughs> trifolia, citrus yeah. trifolia. Yeah. Okay, so it's um, anybody that's ever been into Europe, um, the Sevalier, Valencia Sevalier, areas, the thorny, horrid little mm. creatures. Um, <laughs> citrus trifolia is, I, it's I, the rootstock for all citrus, I believe. Do mm. they colloquially refer to it as flying dragon? Is that something? You've heard of? I've never heard of Someone's that. told me in the past that it was, it's called flying dragon rootstock, so I'm prepared to be 
um, corrected. Correct. There'll be there'll be somebody out there. There'll yeah. be some grafters somewhere that will know. That, yeah, but citrus trifolia, that's, yep. that's the one. And um, the other thing, I'll just give the phone numbers again. Our phone number is nine four one nine oh one double five, and. If you wish to send us a photo, you have to email it to us at gardening at 3cr.org.au. We can't take pictures or video images in here, unfortunately. We just don't have that technology. So what's your other plant, Ben? So globularias. So I've got there's about three varieties I grow now. Um, one I particularly grow is another globularia. It's called a scarni. Um, and that actually comes from the Canary Islands. So if you've got spots where, you, especially because if, if you look at especially old gardens, they've got a lot of uh, uh, pine trees. Um, this actually grows on the cliff faces in on the Canary Islands, all on the pine trees. Absolutely loves it. Loves oh, pine. That's fantastic. Yeah, and thrives. And it doesn't mind the dry conditions. So because you, once you, you get your pine trees growing and they start getting established, it becomes... Uh, hypophobic the soil mm. so and it uh, tends to doesn't mind those really harsh conditions either do, do you pop that do you, do you just have one standard nursery mix because generally with pine needles which is why you see the pine mushrooms growing around them they break down on, onto the alkaline side rather than the acid side which, mm. which we know all composting leaves break down acid mm. the pine leaves are one of the few that actually break down to the alkaline side and that's why the mushrooms grow around them mm. um so so that it's quite happy in an acid mix as well yeah, 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 oh, yeah. No, cool. no, they they just it thrives. Yeah. But yeah, it, it it is a question I get asked a lot. Like I've got pine trees or conifers, and I get nothing to grow under it. Um, so this is one perfect plant for those conditions, and it doesn't need full sun either. So it is something that can handle sort of low light as well. It's still happily flower. And um, tell us the name again. So it's called Globularia scarni. So uh, the other the common name is basically I think they call globe daisy. Yeah, globularia, globularia for those who want to look yeah. it up and, and it has a daisy flower it's not a daisy it's not actually in the uh, asteraceae family uh, mm-hmm. it's just got uh, a re- resemblance of a f- sort of a daisy like flower mm-hmm. um, but it is that globe uh, and it's sort of quite hairy oh, beautiful. Yeah. So. and any particular colour? Uh, mostly blues and purples um, but the Ascani is actually white with a blue uh, a true blue Mm. Uh, sort of margin on the yeah. Oh, what a lovely, lovely plant to bring in. Are you um, going to have? We have. Yes. Have a yep. call from Christine from Frankston. Hello, Christine. Hello. How are you going? Good, thank you. What can we do um, for you? Yeah, look, I'm in the process of. Sorry, I've got a bit here back here. Um, I'm in the process of refreshing a few plants and transplanting a few plants around the garden. Um, one, the most important one is the Daphne in a pot. And it's been in the pot for a long, long time, doing beautifully. Um, I realise that it's needing some sort of refreshing um, and I'm wondering whether I'm going to have luck doing that. Um, because I know how notoriously Daphne's are um, tricky about that sort of thing, about shifting and, and moving their roots. And I'm just wondering what, what the experience of pe- other people have had of doing that. You, you, do, you do actually have that in a pot, don't you, now? Yes, it's in a pot. It's been growing since it came 
as a baby, and now it's sort of about oh, about a metre high and about a metre wide, um, and but looking a little bit um, thin. It's not looking distressed as such, um, but it just looks a little bit old and a little bit sad. If you know what I mean? The leaves are not quite as big. As are they nice and green? Then they're green, yeah. Yeah, you, you certainly can definitely pot it up to the next size pot up, but if it is already quite well established, um, you, you, you can certainly cut them back. Daphne's Daphne's do respond to a haircut, but mm. people cut bunches of flowers off them all the time, so they they do respond to a good haircut. Mm. Um, but I, me and Daphne's, I people can either grow a Daphne or they cannot grow a Daphne. Mm. I'm one that cannot grow a Daphne. I grow lots of them, and they like me. Good. But I do find mm. that I've never grown one longer than about 12 years. I think yeah. they must yeah, think have a, a natural length of time. Yeah. They do. That yeah. is true. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I understand that. Um, and with pruning, yeah. I, would, I would echo Ben's sentiments on the citrus. I would wait until we're past frost time to do it. So, yeah, look, uh, uh, the normal time for pruning is when they flower and then the to... While they're flowering, type of thing to take bunches, isn't it? Really? Yes. Yep. And yes. And, and then, would you suggest I, I tried to take a little bit of the soil out of the pot and refresh it a little bit that no. way? No. Don't don't disturb no. the soil there. Just add to it. No. Daphne's aren't a grafted plant, so they don't mind being just a little add, bit deeper. Just add to it. Yeah. Okay. And so yeah, I've and, done. And, I think I've, yeah, I think I've done that once before, maybe about three or four years ago, and it seemed to be not too bad. So, Christine, yeah, uh, you're, you're not happy to actually repot it? Uh, well, I, I just wonder how whether that was a thing to do or not. I, I wasn't give, sure. give it a general garden fertiliser. Um, just, mm. just, just those prill fertilisers. There's many brands out there, but you know the little round bauble ones. Mm. Give it, yeah. give it, give it a, a feed of that, and don't, don't be too caught up in um, finding a. There won't be a specific one that says Daphne's, but there will be one that says for trees and shrubs or for landscape. That will be yeah. fine for you. Just yeah. rec- manufacturer's recommendations. So I, leave it in the pot that it is? Or? Well, personally, I, I personally would pot it up to the next size. I, I think really that what the plant is sitting in will, will have lost most of its goodness. Yes. Yeah. And so to go up a size, it'll, it'll be happier. Oh, you don't have to, though. I would just say be, um, be sure that you're trying to lift it in its entirety when you take yeah. it out of its pot. Keep so, that root ball moist. Yeah. yeah. Don't yeah. no soil loss. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's All good right, advice. We'll try. Because I'm aware that of its agent often they turn up their toes about this time. But uh, anyway, um, I'll, I'll try that. Um, Nadia, I have another two plants that I'm wanting to shift. Um, the first, uh, a couple of Lorraine leaves. What, what's the best time to shift Lorraine leaf roses? Win- winter. Yeah, okay. You can be fairly ruthless with roses. Yeah. Okay. Right, yeah. yeah. You might. Because uh, I know. You, it, will, it will flower at this time of year for you. It does. Yes. Lorraine Lee is one of the few that will flower around winter, so you might want to wait till it finishes flowering. But as long as you, you're nice to it, they do, sh- they do shift really well. I would yes. say with roses, I try not to move them in a year where they've been really poorly. So if they've had a bad case of black spot or um, a fungal issue that, that started early on, I try not to move them in that year. Um, 
just because that they're already fine. battling some sort of disease. But if you've had a fairly healthy season um, yep, moving into winter, good. then, yeah, it's good yeah. good time to move yep. them. And, um, yeah, look, I just need to shift their position. That's, oh, they're looking pretty good there. Um, and um, canners, um, I've got canners in, in a pot. And, um, again, is it probably winter when they're, least, they're doing the least? Yes. Amount of growing to refresh them, pull them out and yes, divide them and, and put them back in, yeah. Cut, cut any of that old foliage off that's still there. Cut it down to a couple of inches, five centimetres from the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. and divide as you go. Canners divide really yeah. well. You'll, yeah, just some of that old stem. I think they even make dormant buds onto, onto mm. a piece of root, don't they? Yeah. A piece of rhizome, yeah, don't really, they? Yeah. yeah. They do. Yep. So, so while you're going, break them up, refresh them totally. Yeah, and hand over a few to someone else. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a nice opportunity. And that's what yeah, it's about, it's that sharing. Plenty of them there. But good luck okay. with that Daphne. Yeah, the Daphne was the one that I was really needing to to brainstorm a bit. Yeah, we'll have a go at that <laughs> after they flowered, probably. Yeah. Look, yeah. It, it may be time just to pick up a new one, not being rude, but yeah, it's well, like that's it just what might thinking, be time. But if it's... The other um, thing that's interesting friend. with Daphne is that there are so many varieties now. You know, there, I've got one Daphne sitting at my side door, which is in a lot of sun. Oh, look, they come happy in... Happy as happy. They come in purples, they come in yeah. yellows, mm-hmm. they come in variegations, they come in whites, they, yeah. they come in pinks, there's, there's the, the deciduous ones, there's, there's yeah. lots and lots of Daphnes out so the, there. Daphne Genqua. Genqua's the Genqua. Yeah, that's a real nice one. And they've got the crosses now. They've been uh, they've been hybridising. Yeah, might investigate. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, have a, have a look. But it's not just the old-fashioned Daphne anymore. There's lots of new ones out there for you to have a look at. I might at the same time... I might try and refresh this one, and then, but at the same time plant a new one somewhere. Too. Good girl. You know, in a, in a pot. Yeah. Would, that's exactly yeah, the right thing to do. Yeah. Good. Well, good luck, Christine. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for help. Bye. And Anne has phoned from Keylock, and I had I spent from six o'clock till half past six looking for your message, and I could not find it anywhere. So thank you so much for ringing. Anne has rung to let us know that Keylock East Community Garden is having an open day today from ten till three. It's a free entry. There's chickens to view, plants for sale, kids activities, dogs on leads are welcome. And it is 10A Tupple, T-U-P-P-A-L, Tupple Place, Keylaw East. And I'm really sorry I didn't mention it before, Anne, but somehow I, I read about it in hospital and then lost it. <laughs> so I'm very sorry. So that's today? That is today. Oh, good. So people around that area, go to Keylaw East, 10A Tupple Place, Keylaw East. And go and look at the chooks. I love looking at chickens. Funny. <laughs> it's yeah. always exciting. Yeah. And we've now got a call from Jill from East Malvern. Jill, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Jill. I wanted to ask, is it too late to prune off my japonica, just a light prune, because it's absolutely monstrously huge. If you prune it um, now, you'll prune off the flowers. Oh, Okay. So I shan't. Yes, I'll do it after it finishes flowering. 
have your flowers, enjoy them, cut bunches, give them away, take them inside. They're a fantastic cut flower. And once again, with japonicas, they are pretty tough. They can, they are fairly forgiving with how you prune them. Don't, don't be prune, frightened. I did, I did prune them after the flowering, but they're absolutely huge because we've had so much rain. Mm-hmm. And they've responded, and they've responded to your pruning. Now's yeah, a good but, opportunity but, to feed them, though. Oh, I don't need to feed it. <laughs> it's at least 90 years old. Our house is going to be 100 next year. What colour is it? Uh, Which one? Uh, our house the, is a the Californian bungalow. The, know, ja- the red brick bungalow. The Japonica. And, and the Japonica has been there most of the time. We've been here nearly 50 years, and it was huge, huge then. But, but so, what colour is your Japonica? Oh, it's it's the you know sort of pink with a little bit of orange in the pink. Oh yeah, that one. Yeah, that that is the most vigorous of them all. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yep. And it does. It even has fruit on it. Yep. Yep. And and you know what? That makes the most delicious jelly. I I made it once, and it's 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 a tangy. It's it's almost like guava or fajoa, but it's 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 quite tangy. It's 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 a weird flavour. Yummy, sweet. Um, but yeah, a little citrusy, a little, it's, it's a, it's a strange one and it goes the most gorgeous pink when you cook it. Mm. Oh, I'm going to try that. Yeah, that's a great tip. I shall. But don't, don't eat, don't eat them, don't eat them green, don't eat them straight off the bush. They're as bitter as bitter. (laughs) No, I won't eat them green. Can I just say, Virginia? Yes, Jill. Glad to hear that you're on deck. (laughs) Thank you. Did you get my text about sending two PowerPoints to Kindred Garden? Well, yes, yes, I did, and that was excellent. Thank you, Jill. Because I just, right. I could not go up there. I just, it was not possible. She's back on deck. No, she was no, cracking no. the whip on us earlier on, wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I've just turned eighty, and I think driving to Kyneton there and back, uh, you know, in the evening is too much for me these days, especially by myself. So yes, I understand I, that. I, that's why I sent uh, flowers. Of, of the herb trees and plants that were on the first fleet. So that's a fascinating topic because I've actually got uh, one of them, the uh, dallas, uh, which is the regulator of the bowel. And that was that plant was taken from uh, Brazil on the first fleet to New South Wales. And years ago, uh, Jenny James, who lives in Hyneton, saw my phone number on the website of the Herb Society and said, would you like some lavender? And so I went and picked the lavender and uh, she gave it to the Herb Society. She's been doing that for about 13 years. That's anyway, excellent. she had this gorgeous magenta flowers in the garden near her front door and I said, oh, oh, I love that colour. That's my fave. And she, I said, could I have some seeds? So she got a, a pad and swept up heaps of them, put them all around my garden, and then I found out that's one of the plants on the first leaf. You so should... wasn't that exciting? Have you got seed from it? Yes. Oh, well, save me some, Jill, and I'll give it to Ben, and he can propagate it for us all. Yeah, well, I've got a okay. lot of seed down at the moment, so yeah, I'm still going <laughs> and putting seed down, so, so a lot of new goodies flower. coming in spring. Well, be, it'd be good to be getting it propagated more if it's a first fleet plant. Yes. Well, the first fleet, uh, you know, called into Tenerife, 
add to Brazil and, of course, the Cape of Good Hope. And the weird thing is that it took oak trees from the Cape of Good Hope, which had been put there by the English, obviously, as decor, as decoration for New South Wales. And there was another one too, the... Uh, oh, a hawthorn. No, not a hawthorn. Anyway, I can't remember what it is, but it's got a white flower. And, uh, and, and uh, it's just a fascinating... Uh, topic and there's no illustration of the uh, sort of containers that they took the, the plants in to stop them getting wind and salt water spray on them. There's no illustration of anything. There's only one of 20 years later, the Awardian case that was created later. And there has um, been a there has been a book written about that Edwardian case, hasn't there? There was a program just been. recently on SBS, that one. Hmm. Well, thank well, you very I, much for all that, Jill. Thank oh, you for sharing. Yeah, thanks. All the best. Thank I'll you. I'll the seeds and send them in to, send them in to you, Virginia. Fantastic. Okay. You're going to be busy, you. Ben. <laughs> Bye. 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 Well, that was all very interesting. Let me give those numbers again. The on-air line, 94190155. If you'd like to speak to Doug, on the off-air line, 94198377. The text, 0488809855. And if you wish to send us some photos, gardening at 3cr.org.au. So we'd love to hear from you. And I'm Virginia Haywood, and with me is Emma, Peter and Ben. Emma is a landscape architect and horticulturalist, and both Peter and Ben are very serious nursery people. And if you want to see both of them, you'll be able to see them at the Yarra Valley Plant Fair in mid-April. And you seem to have a very interesting plant there. Okay, so I brought in a little shump something for show and tell. Does anybody know what this one is, Emma? No, I'm very intrigued though. It looks well, I, I saw this plant in New South special. Wales at a plant fair we did in New South Wales maybe seven or eight years ago. And my partner looked at that and he went, oh my God, it's a penis plant. <laughs> and what, now what does that look like, ladies? You are right. It, that looks like a, a little penis, doesn't it? Okay, so this, Ben, this is one of the succulents. This is a, in the Serapagia. So any, anybody that knows the chain of hearts, the oh. chain of pearls, the chain of needles. Okay, this so is another one of them. And, and this is how it grows. That this is all it does. Um, now it's 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 a South African native um, through to Madagascar. Um, it, it doesn't like the frost. This little bloke won't take it. And and this has sat in in our lounge room for for years and years and years. And when I got it, Ben, believe it or not, um, and Emma, this was probably that long. That's all I could buy. And and we just we just fell in love with it just just because it, it is a conversation piece. So the plant that I grabbed this from this morning, just when uh, when Virginia said, bring something interesting in because we're, we're going to need something else to talk about, for God's sake, guys. Um, so I just grabbed this this morning. And my, the plant that's coming off would now be a metre or so around. And it would probably have two or three hundred flowers on it. Um, and it will flower for Two maybe... Two or three hundred. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. This is the first year it's responded well, um, and, and I don't think it's had anything to do with climatic conditions because, I mean, it's always been inside in a sunny window ledge. I just think it's, it's mature now. 
Um, and it's like it really should be in a hanging basket. It is a climbing plant in by nature. This will um, appear on Facebook, everybody, because Emma's just taken a photograph. It's it's and and, I, and, and we, so we haven't staged this for that photograph. It is looking like a little erect penis. That's mm. exactly what it's looking like. What's its foliage like? Does it have leaves? Or? It has the tiniest set of needles. So pass that over to Em, please, Ben. So so out each of the internodes there, it has two little simple leaves. Now, you probably won't, there may not be any on that, but yeah, it has hardly any foliage at all. Now, in the middle of winter, it's one of those that has to be dry in winter. Like, I think, like most of the succulents, Ben, you may need to correct me because I'm not a succulent grower by any means. Um, winter, we don't water it at all, it, ha- it drops the little bit of foliage it has and it sits. Um, well, it's probably one we should propagate up for the Yarra Valley plant fair, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and tell us its name again. So. Serapagia. So it's Serapagia ampliata. A-M-P-L-I-A-T-A. Ampliata. And, and Serapagia is a C or an S? C. C-E-R-O-P-E-G-I-A. Um, yeah, it's it's a great little plant. And, and it really is. I, I haven't seen it in Victoria anywhere. Um, and as I said, we, we bought it back from New South Wales at one of the plant fairs we did up there. There is other varieties of it as well, um, but they're not as spectacular as that one. They're though. not Well, the, yeah. the chain of hearts and yeah. all those sorts of things, they, they all have. When, when you look at it, you go, oh, yeah, that little pink and black flower. Oh, yeah, yeah I have seen that before, but they have these, they're, like, what, they're, they're probably four, five, six millimetres long. Yeah. This would be... How would and, that, it's, and it's white. We that, haven't would, told everybody. It's actually... It's white, yeah. It's with, white and green. With like a green claw <laughs> at the top. Yeah, would that, would that be... It's a crayon. Five, it'd be five, yeah. six yeah. centimetres, would that be? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. like at a guess, without it's putting just, a tape measure on it's it. It's about the length mm. of a... Finger. Finger. Yep. Yeah, it's about the length of my little yeah. finger, yeah. yeah. And that doesn't mean anything to anybody, really, does it? <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's that's one that I bought in. Now, do I have time for another one, or will we talk about something nope, else? No, fire away. Okay, so we were talking about cassonias earlier on, oh. and and look, I I have carted these plants around. I I imported my original seed out of South Africa at least thirty years ago. Um, so there are, there are many forms of cassonia. I, my partner and I have been fortunate enough to have had a bit of a had, had some excursions into South Africa, and um, one particular excursion went from Zambia through Zimbabwe and, and onto a, a little private rail called Rovis Rail. Most Australians won't have ever heard of that one before. Um, it's it's if you can book on, have a go. It's not cheap, but it's great. And under the the rail. Um, border exchange between South Africa and Zimbabwe it's built under a cassonia so that's how big they get guys um, so these, these little guys, as I said, they're South African, they're drought resistant. So if you look down at the base there, in the pot, there's this little globe. It's basically, um, I guess, when we're all one big land, um, I, I guess it's it's Boabab, the Australian Boabab tree would be its, its closest cousin. So there's this big root stock, which is its um, food reserves for times of hardship. Um, the bottom, the last year's leaves are going a little bit yellow on it because it's semi-deciduous by nature, particularly out in my climate. Guys, we've already had a frost at home. Have you? Yep, already had a frost. Um, so... Um, 
it, as a pot plant, it's a fantastic thing. Um, and I'll have um, one that's about 30 years old up at the Yarra Valley Plant Fair for people to have a look at, plus plants for sale. Hey, that's the commercial sort of person I am. Um, how old would these plants be? Um, I, I'm guessing these are about five years old already. Um, but they, they do, they're structural. They're um, this plant at five years old would be one and a half foot high? Be a 30 centimetres-ish, 40 centimetres-ish. Um, and But they're interesting because... As they mature, you can actually count the growth rings down the stems. And there's actually four rings there, so that one's only about four years old. Um, so we've, we've robbed it, it of a year. And its full name? Cassonia paniculata. Okay, so there are many different Cassonias. Not all of them are ideal pot plants. Some of them really do just want to reach for the scar skies. Mm. So look out for paniculata. It's and it and in it, the more sun you give it, it has the most gorgeous blue hue to the foliage. It's it's a great structural plant. Well, I've just planted another. I've got one big one which my friend Fiona moved to Dorset, and she had it in a pot. And I said that looks miserable. I'll take it and put it in. And it took a couple of years to recover coming out of the pot. But I've now planted another four along to sort of give some structure to that. It's my most difficult bed. It's up the highest part of my property, facing north and west. So on a bad summer, it's, you know, it's... Yeah. Struggles. They, they'll take it now. And I have look. I, I want to digress a little bit more. So, so the plant that I carry around to the plant fairs and things is a, is a double stemmer. And um, so, so about five years ago, we adopted a little potty calf. Her, her mother died at birth, and, and um, me being a frustrated zookeeper that I am, had to, had to adopt Daisy. What else do you call a potty calf? She's a little Hereford cross. She's gorgeous. But one day, my Cassonia in this pot plant was coming into flower, and I thought, excellent, we'll pick some seed this year instead of having to go looking for seed. And love her heart. Little Daisy ate it. She ate the top out. The seed, obviously, must the seed flowering spike must have been sweet. And little Daisy ate my poor Cassonia back. So, guys, and I know some of you do come up and say good day to us up at the Yarra Valley Plant Fair. Um, come and have a look, and you'll, I'll show you exactly where it shot away from. So just because Daisy ate it, and I thought it had died, after all of those years it shot back so they are fairly forgiving too um, and I have wrenched them in fact out of the soil and broken quite large tap roots off that have gone out the bottom of my pot and um, they still they still recover that's quite a silver fantastic, lining, isn't yes. it? You've mm. got yourself a quirky shape. From Thanks to Little Daisy, yeah. whom I still have too. Because most of you Aww. say it's just that single yeah. single trunk with that nice sort of cabbage sort of like cabbage head, head, yeah, yep, head cabbage on it. Head. So, yeah, you don't see them sort of branching out. Their Not leaves yet. are beautiful. Mm. Like they're very distinctive. It's yeah. a palm. It's a palmate leaf. So yeah. so for that people think of an oak leaf. Um, yeah, okay, so it's it's a five shape leaf um, out there. And. We have Graham Morrison ringing to tell us about citrus. Good morning to Graham. Good morning, Virginia. How are you? Good. I'm uh, pleased you've rung in as our. You are absolutely our citrus expert. Yeah, well, that that's true. The one you meant said, "Look, she's sure to be someone out there." I've been wrestling with these rootstocks all my life, so I thought I'd just put put put, put, put a bit of information out for your listeners there. Uh, there are the main ones are trifoliata, as, as the chap said there. Troya is another one. Uh, rough lemon. We, we, in uh, New South Wales, they call it rough lemon. We had called citronella down here. Flying dragon, as the girl, girl said, and citrange. And uh, I think if people are, you know, are buying a citrus tree, 
have, have, have a look at the label and you know don't put it on rough if the, the rootstock is rough lemon that was a very convenient way for nurserymen to grow the thing because it grew very fast it was a lot faster than the other one so it was you know, economically better to put that one out there than to have it on trifolia or citrange which is slower you know slower slower to grow uh, rough lemon wasn't such a good one either because it was uh, okay. It was a good drought one, but it uh, suffered from phytophthora. It suffered from wet, 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 wet feet, and so certainly trifoliata or citrine to be buying by, by, by buying a citrus tree are two good rootstocks, reliable rootstocks to 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 grow your your citrus on. The other the the, the girl there. For, Forgive me, I've forgotten your name. She, she, she mentioned flying dragon. Yes. And, and flying dragon is a really good one. It, it's a dwarf, a dwarf stock, so your, your citrus tree doesn't grow uh, as, uh, anywhere near as big as, uh, say, on, on a trifolia out or a citrange. And, uh, you know, for our convenience in our garden to have a small, smaller tree these days, it's, it's the way to go. So I just thought, I thought I'd put that to you, Virginia. Thank you very much, Graham. That's exactly the sort of information we were looking for. Yeah, that's Thank so you. valuable. Thank you for calling yep. in. Yep, you're, you're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Thank you. Well, that was interesting. We, so I've, I've um, seen one of my neighbours has cut down a citrus, removed the tree, and the, um, the rootstock's coming up, and I think there'll be no way for her to get rid of it except to poison it. Yes. Mm. It looks very vigorous. And thorny, I imagine. And thorny. Absolutely. And nothing aches more than a citrus thorn under the fingernails. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them you don't see before they're they're already in. No. They're they're not fun, are they? No. Something I've done interesting with citrus, I just did a job just recently. Um, I espaliated four of them uh, just along a fence line. So, yeah, got this beautiful big frame around them. Yeah. So... Oh, fantastic! Yeah. It's I mean, citrus do so well as spelliade, and they mm. they still produce an amazing amount of fruit mm. and perfume. Yes, mm. we've also had a call from Sue in Callista, who would like to know more about how to overwinter begonias. She says, "Do do I leave them in pots? Where should they be positioned?" And is there any treatment required for fungus or things like that? All right, we'll start at A. Do we leave them in pots? If you've only got one, two, you know, up to ten begonias, tuberous begonias, um, did, did she emphasise their tuberous begonias? Mm, no. Um, oh, we, yes. Okay, so we, we, we are talking tuberous begonias. Okay. Um, if, you've only, if, you've, if you've got a few, ten, ten would be the limit. Um, you don't really need to take them out of their pots. You can just turn the pots on its side, out of the weather. The idea of protecting them from the, is to protect them from the rain and keep your tuber dry. An advantage for taking them out of the pots is to inspect your tubers because the Daniel Rangers have an endemic or, or have a natural um, um, chewing critter, black fine weevil. Um, most of you will have seen the sickle um, chew marks around the leaf edges, okay? That's black vine weevil. The larvas will eat just about any roots, they will eat chew just about any bark, and they do like tuberous begonias as well. So just in, pull, take your tuber out, invert your pot, 
remove the soil. Don't rip the tuber out of the pot because you'll break any decent roots that are on it. There's also food storage in the roots. So the way a tuberous begonia works is as it goes to sleep, like all flowering bulbs, it pulls everything it wants back into its plant. So never cut the top off the tuberous begonia and all um, plants, bulbs that go dormant. Let it happen by uh, itself. Mother Nature will do it for you. You're robbing the plant of its winter food supply if you remove the foliage before it's ready. They'll fall apart bit by bit. Don't worry about that. Let it happen. Clean the pot off, remove the soil from the bulb, so invert the pot, pull the soil away, you'll be left with a bulb. Inspect your bulb, okay, that's the first thing. If you can see black vine weevil, and black vine weevil larva will always leave a trace around the bulb, sort of like um, the grubs that go into your apple trees or your apples, you'll see that the excretia as, as a cover for, to hide its tracks. M remove it, you'll find that it'll weevils, Feed them to your chickens or dispatch them humanely, I would suggest. Store your tubers, if you're removing them from pots, in a cool, dark place, protected from the frost. If it's, you leave them in the soil, in their pots on their sides, the soil will protect them from the frost. Do you need to worry about a fungicide? Um, not really as a dormant bulb. The scale that I have my collection at at, we we really don't worry about any post or pre-growth dipping treatment. Um, really, when the, when the tuber itself goes to sleep, the only fungal problems that will attack tuberous begonias is a little bit of black spot and powdery mildew, which all happen if you water them at night or you're in those you're up there in the Danyongs, the cold climate, so the leaves will sit wet. During growth season, you'll have a problem with your leaves, that's all. Um, so far as, look, a little bit of penicillin might grow around the old scar from the growth from last year's stems. Um, and if you happen to break the skin that's around the tuber, a little bit of penicillin mold might come in there. If your tuber has picked up a little bit of rot during the season, generally it will seal off. Just like as you watch it fall apart, the stems will seal themselves off. The tuber itself, where the rot is, will seal itself off. It will dry out, remove it. You can dust it with a little bit of sulfur if you want, but I, once again, I, I don't. Um, I certainly wouldn't go putting a tuber that you had removed some rust from in with your other tubers simply for hygiene purposes and if it's if it's something that can be spread um you know just by contact uh, keep keep them separate definitely but basically you'd say leave them in the pot look if you've only got a, a handful i've just let just let your soil dry out so as you put your tubers begonia into dormancy and it goes yellow withhold your watering don't suddenly get to the 4th of may and say that's it i'm not going to water my begonia anymore your begonia will tell you it doesn't want as much water. And, 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 and Steve Ryan and, and we have uploaded um, websites which give you the, the ins and outs of growing tubers begonias as well. Um, but the basic rule of thumb, we call it, is pop your finger into the pot. And if you can feel moisture down to the first or second joint, it's fairly generous. Leave it alone. If you can't feel moisture, give it a drink during the growing season. So as you put your tuberous begonia into dormancy, halve the amount of water you're giving it. So instead of watering it twice a week, water it once a week, and then let miss a week. It's a, it's a gradual process. It frightens a lot of people, but it'll happen naturally, and your tuber will go to sleep quite happily in the dry soil. And it probably won't do very much until 
out our way, which we're, we're a seven six hundred and eighty meter elevation, so the closer well you you're quite high up there too. Um, really, the middle of of September is when our tubers are starting to show growth. And, and by that, I mean, a tuberous begonia, like all bulbs, has an up and a downside. The concave side is the upside. That's where the old, flat, the old stem was from last year. Around that, there'll be maybe one, maybe two, maybe ten buds. It's, it's not really um, exact science as to how many buds there are around the, the old growth scar. Um, they won't all break, just the, the main leaders will break and then they'll rob the smaller ones of any, any nutrients. So those little buds that don't break will go back to sleep again, and they'll sit there. The, the buds are there forever. And basically, with all bulbs, or the vast majority of bulbs, your real threat is too much water and them rotting, not Correct. too little water. Correct. Yep. You'll never, you'll never kill a bulb with too little water. All that will happen with too little water is it'll go into an early dormancy. And that doesn't matter whether it's spring and summer... For, um, summer flowering bulbs or winter flowering bulbs it doesn't matter though they will go to sleep naturally or if they have a hiccup and a drought hits them be that mother nature or be that us withholding water it's all a drought as far as the bulbs concerned whether it's in a pot or the, the garden it will simply want to go to sleep early that's all i've i've planted a lot of um winter flowering bulbs because i'm on tank water in Seville, and consequently i I run out of water. This is the first year I've been there. Sixteen years. This is the first year in sixteen years I haven't run out of water. I always run out of water, so I think I look at all my um, winter flowering bulbs that have been dormant through the hot, hot summer. Therefore, haven't been asking for any water, and they're popping up. Usually, they're popping up because other things are looking terrible because I've run out of water and I haven't watered. But and that, that's another thing with feeding your bulbs. Once you've taken a Mother Nature and the bulb has given you the flowers, it's always a good idea to feed your bulbs up after flowering because that peps them up for now. It just gives them, it just gives them a little bit extra to get them into the next season as well. Um, just, just that help for them. So as a general rule with all bulbs, once they finish flowering, go and give them some fertiliser. Mm. Do you grow many bulbs, Ben? I, more oxalis. <laughs> no, I do. I do grow. Uh, no, no. Wait, 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 actually, wait. No, yeah, no, they're not invasive oxalis. Good. So yeah, mm. I grow a lot of. Probably got only not as much as Stephen Rye and, yeah. and a lot of those collectors, but mm. I do grow probably. I think probably about twenty varieties. So That's yeah. A good um, but I have got a couple of succulent sort of varieties as well. So one I um, particularly like is that Zoxalis pedunculares. And it's uh, the foliage. It doesn't have to be flowering. It's just the foliage. That's that more tropical one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, and uh, yeah. It's and just it's the... it's prop- I find the rabbits adore that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it probably depends on the rabbit. So because we got a lot of rabbits where we are as well, but they tend to leave that one alone. Do they? For they me, do. Yeah. I have tried leaving. I took mm. the cover off for the first time in a year. Mm. Bang! Off it went. Yep. I mean, it'll always come back. Yeah, they're good like that. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah. But yeah, no, the rabbit, the rabbits adore it. Yeah, but they won't self-seed, so they don't see, they don't so uh, will produce a lot of seed. So they're not gonna, you're not gonna find they're gonna pop up everywhere in your garden or anything. Are like are, so. are, are the um, cultivated oxalis? We'll, we'll call them cultivated because that's people all suddenly think of shamrocks and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Are, are they are, they're the same they, as the other ox, as the weed variety oxalis. They still make their little the little satellites around the big bulb, and you can still yeah, some that's are, how they multiply. Yeah, some are um, 
well, not all, because some of them have got rhizomes. So, uh, but yeah, you'll find the bulb, especially something like Oxalis pedunculares or uh, not pedunculares, um, palmifrons, uh, it doesn't produce as many bulbs. So these little offsets, it's just very slow. So, so with that rhizome, which I, ne- I didn't know Oxalis had rhizome, there you go, yep. some varieties. So they're propagated through stem yep. section cuttings? Yep. 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 Yeah. You can do some of them by seed as well. So as long as you've got the two different species to pollinate, and yeah, they will, will set seed. But they don't, like I said before, they're not particular varieties that will spread and set seed and throw seed everywhere. Oh, there, there's so, some beauties out there, isn't oh, there? Yeah, Barber's yeah. poles. Barber's pole, is that yeah, that's one yeah, of them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen that for a long time. Do you grow that one? Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah. So another one's really nice. I love the leaf structure. It's actually called polyphyla heterophylla. And it's, you swear on it, mate. Yeah. <laughs> the, it's like a very skinny hand. So very fine sort of uh, sort of petals so it's something that's really unusual but even the flower has like the barber pole but being instead of being the red it's actually pink and and how how tall still about the same no probably a little bit lower a bit lower yeah probably never seen it over anything than say 10 centimeters so and will you be bringing some up to the Yarra Valley Garden Show yes I will be yeah yeah so hopefully they'll they'll be starting to grow in flower won't they yeah but surprisingly there's a few that I've um, noticed that haven't sprouted yet so I think it's probably because because we had the hot and drier sort of summer, yeah. So hopefully, we have Margie from Malvern who wants to talk to us about aphids on her apple tree. Hi, Margie. Hello. Good morning. Um, I'm at my wit's end. Uh, I chopped all of the top of the trees down about this time last year. They're fully mature pink ladies. They were covered in woolly aphids um, and I have a beautiful um, Jonathan next door to them which didn't seem to be as bad. Now I chopped them back so that I could saturate it in methylated spirits which I did Um, and of course they've grown back as big as they ever were but again about this time of year covered in woolly aphid and I'm at the point of just chopping the trees down, and I, I can't control it. Who's going first, so, Ben? You or I? I think you probably need to look at. Um, it's not so much the insect; it's the plant that's suffering from something. So you probably find um, there's something's happening, like in the soil. Either they're not getting enough moisture, or there's too much moisture there, or it's, uh, there's lack of nutrients. Um, so the plant's weak in some way. So the, what the insect's doing is it actually it's coming in and sort of yeah affecting the weak weak plant. So so, so now it, sorry. So, so so you've got and, and yeah um, in, infect, infestations from insects normally occur when the plants had a knock of some sort. Mm. Um, so so um, just a normal chemical isn't going to get you woolly aphids. You're going to need to break and and wet. You've got to saturate. So a, a detergent saturates that little fluffy bit on them to allow it to absorb the chemical so you'll need to put a wetting agent with i'm sorry to have to say a commercial chemical because pyrethrum actually won't work for woolly aphids so you're going to need to to go along to your retail outlet and have a talk to them and they'll recommend something it probably won't be anything as strong as carbol but they'll definitely be recommending 
um, a commercial insecticide, systemic and um, contact insecticide for you because you need to pop something into your plant so when they pop on there next time it's going to be withheld in that system and and you know by withholding period we might mean one week two weeks three weeks so if you don't kill them all today or this as long as it takes the chem the active ingredient to kill your aphis it will remain in the plant system so when they hop up there to have a free feed um they'll ingest it and that's the only probably the only way you're going to get rid of them on such a big mm. plant if it was a small plant yeah. there'd be other ways but that's that's a big plant with obviously um, you've got big plants and it's, it's um, unfortunately it's going to be a mechanical, mechanical i.e. spraying yeah. type system. One other option I would say bef uh, after, I mean maybe you do want to just skip to the knockdown um, but if you're looking to prevent it returning long term, uh, developing you know, a good diverse range of predator insects is, is a wise idea if you can. Um, try planting some some pollinator attracting plants in the area um, things like ladybirds are really beneficial for woolly aphid um, so yes, you can I you do can have purchase. I have a lot a lot of ladybirds because basically oh, the garden's organic mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering it's whether it's possum spreading this because there are lots of apparently apple trees in the area suffering with woolly aphid and I there are so many possums in mm. the trees. The other um, thing we've had is a very wet season, even though, I mean, my garden's as dry as dry at the moment, but there has been more rain across the summer than normal, which might be part of the problem. So what's going to happen? Right. Um, possums are fairly clean little critters, as are all of the possums. So the minute something jumps on its fur, it's going to want to clean itself. It's going to feel like a flea or this or that. So so the possum is going to clean itself. So so um, unless it, it's probably being spread by that possum going from tree to tree on your property, but the fact that you know it's got to go two or three block houses away, the possum's going to at some point sit and preen itself, and it's going to preen itself and it's going to remove them so i wouldn't be blaming your neighbors at this point i i somebody has um messaged in margie suggesting that you might try lime sulfur in the yes, in the winter yes I've, yes i've thought of that it's just the application of it and i don't really like being up the ladder i'm not supposed to be yes um but it requires that sort of almost gantry to get up there mm -hmm. um other than chop it so far back so that then I have access to the crown of the tree. And so it's a big deal. That's why I'm wondering whether I just take them out because I'm getting a bit tired of it. And it's sad because I love them. I haven't had any fruit ever because of possums and birds. Um, and I haven't been able to net them. Well, with the you appropriate can consider hiring someone to, to give them yes. a spray. And a really yes. hard prune. Yeah, because... Prune. Yeah, if you find the right horticulturalist um, to come in and, and give them a hard prune and a spray, that might save you a whole lot of, of uh, future stress. <laughs> so, yes, thank you. I suggest but that. I suggest you try that. You try giving it a hard prune, which means bringing someone in. Don't you go up and try and do it. And that might make them easier to control all together. Give them, then give them another year, and if that doesn't work... Sayonara. Mm, I'd probably yeah. yeah do pH readings, um, you can, which you can take you know source samples to your local nursery, and hopefully they'll be able to do a pH reading for you as well. 
But thank you. Yeah, see, it's it could be something of look could be a lack of nutrients as well. Mm. Um, are you noticing a lot of ants on it? Uh, no. Yeah, because ants are a way of the um, of transporting the aphids from tree to tree. Because what they will do is they they'll harvest the insect. So yes, they farm them, sorry. So they'll move yes. into one tree and the aphid will actually, it sucks the uh, sugars out of the tree and uh, discretes a uh, honeydew at the back of them. So what the ant does, yep. it comes in and takes that sweet little nectar from it. So And then what it'll do, it'll do is it'll transfer it from tree to tree. So it can keep no, its food source I haven't, up. I haven't seen ants, just all this white fluff everywhere. Hmm. So it's like snow when I, I hose, try and hose it off. Mm. Um, as a quick thing before I do the other stuff. Anyway, I'll well, keep best of luck, Margie. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. And love the show. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, we have to hope, I think. We've got Gloria on line nine. Hello, Gloria. How are you? Hi, Virginia. <laughs> I'm good. I'm getting feedback on this. Why am I getting feedback on this? I cannot tell you because we don't have it here. You, okay. You were going to it's talk stopped. to us about viburnums. I am, but I just wanted to mention about the uh, Cassonia. I had, uh, when we bought this house 30 years ago, um, the previous owners had put a Cassonia in a pot, and it's not the paniculata, it's the spicata, and it's now about 30 feet tall. <laughs> yep, that sounds about they had right. It as a, yeah, they had it as a pot plant. Outgrew the house. Um, but I'm actually calling about my viburnums, which are, I think they're being sucked with thrip. Would it be thrip? Uh, that's more common with an ear thrip, yeah. Yeah, something sucking the life out of them anyway. But what I want to do is I had seven across the back north fence and remove and replace because I think they're just, uh, I've tried sprays. Which, which viburnum? Which, is it one of the evergreen ones or the deciduous ones? Uh, the evergreen. Times. The odor. The odor. Odoratissimum. Odoratissimum. Mm. Oh, well done. Yes, I can never pronounce that. Um, so, yeah, I think it's beyond, you know, spraying and everything else. So, 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 so what, are, what are the results? What, 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 are, what are we looking at? What, what's, what's the physical what evidence happened? of what's going on there? Oh, it's just dying essentially They're, the leaves are turning brown is there any off. any is there a residual on the back of the leaves like are there little brownie gray spots yes yes okay oh, it's, mites. it's mites is probably is there a silver looking sheen to the plants yeah okay during sunny periods not that we've had a lot at the moment do you do you see glistening web or do you see almost like um a bit of smoke hanging around which is fine fine web well it's right on the north back fence so i'd have to stumble over the whole garden in front of it to get to it i have not noticed that it, oh, it's sounding like it's mites or that little lacewing thing that gets at the back of leaves on vi- most viburnums you don't think it's thrip? thrip? Thrip normally attacks the buds or the flowers. Mm. Thrip normally doesn't just attack the leaves. Oh, okay. So thrip, you really don't know you've got thrip. I mean, a classic way of seeing if you've got thrip is whack your towels on the clothesline, have a shower, 
tiled yourself down and if you come up in little lesions and little almost like I call them hay fever bumps on the back of your neck that's normally thrip biting that's a classic indicator if you've got thrip in, plague thrip in your area yeah um, my, my guess is it's going to be mite or it's going to be those little leaf hopper things that get like on the red back spider of mite yeah, yeah red I'd spider say, mite I, will be is, yeah, is more, sort of more. where I'm coming from with what it sounds like because mm. um, it's showing up thrip wouldn't be showing up on the backs of leaves red spider right. mite is not that easy to get rid of no. Generally, it's about moisture in the soil. Plants, plants having a bit of an attack there of something, yeah. a, 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 a food crisis problem there, water, yeah. Mm. Um, and, and, and red spider oh, mites common. It might, you, it, it's you common. you mean it might be short of water? Uh, short of water would be an easy if, Unlikely, assumption. Unlikely, because I, I do have a spray system at the back. Mm. Yeah, but is it giving them a good deep drink? Thrip, um, thrip. Red spider mite are prevalent everywhere and you really oh, don't yeah. know them and they're there until your plants are suffering some kind of shock um and you know what area do you live i'm in bulleen bulleen is fairly dry out through there mm. yeah see uh, uh, try giving your plants a good deep drink i mean i know you've got a spray system and you'd be amazed how many people tell me their spray system waters their gardens really really well and you scratch the mulch and yeah, it's moist for the first centimetre yeah. and it's bone dry under there. Yeah, because it's only yep. going on for a certain amount Such of time. Such a short yeah, amount of time so instead of a good deep yeah, drink. Yeah. The dripper system giving delivering water right to the root ball where it's needed rather than wetting the mulch down. You should probably let it run for a whole day with the mm. drip system, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, you need, you need to get it wet. Mm. Wow. Yeah. But however, ha- having said that, you could be right, but I think it's beyond it. It's, it's whatever's doing it is I think when you Gloria when you get bad red spider mite my solution you either go for confidor which is a really unpleasant thing to use or you pull it out I pulled out all my azaleas because I, that's it. what I'm thinking of doing I think I just want to pull them out and mm. replace and I was going to ask you what I could replace them with well definitely well my grevilleas got red spider mite yeah. this year yeah, they I was really horrified You've got you've got viburnums growing there. Re, revisit oh, there are seven, the, seven revisit the viburnums. The oh, camellias! Camellias yeah. won't get red spider mites. There's plenty, plenty of plants out there to to yeah, yeah. use for screening or but hedging. But before you plant, yeah. I'd really recommend uh, increasing the humus level in the soil so that it retains more moisture. So something like a mushroom compost will really help um, if the soil is semi-hydrophobic. Um, yeah, that would really help. And a soil, and a soil wetter, and there yes. are also now these really good water absorbent crystals, which just just a few of those in the bottom of the holes helps yeah. these days too. Mm. That would really benefit before venturing into planting something new. Yeah. So, whip out the viburnums because I think they've had their day. Yep, because they've been stuck dry. Wait a while. And, and in that waiting so, time, get some compost and soil mushroom, preparation. Yeah, mushroom mm. compost, etc. Yeah, in there. A soil wetter and crystals. Get, get, yeah, get 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 that soil improved. Get it get it back to back to holding water. Mm. But even if you've got existing mulch there too, just dig that existing mulch in as well. So um, and. and then, with your camellias, if you do go down that road, think about the water housier because they are remar- Ooh, remarkably yeah. drought resistant. They are. In fact, one of my neighbours has, I think he was president of the Camellia Society and has the most amazing garden. Might go and have a chat to him. I would do exactly <laughs> that, Gloria. Well, thank, yes. thank you for ringing, my dear. Hey, thanks.
Okay, bye-bye. Now, we, Robert from Mitcham wants to know if limes and citrus are also grown on the same rootstock. And, Robert, I can assure you the one that's come out in Fitzroy that's thrown up is definitely on the same rootstock. It's on the very thorny rootstock, I think. And that was a citrus, as was a... They, 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 uh, sorry, that was a kumquat. They all use, they're all the commercial varieties. They're all grafted onto that group, that selection that we were given. Yep. Right. So I think you'll find which, whichever one you're faced with, lime, kumquat, orange, lemon, lemon. they'll all be on one of those if mm. they're grafted. Mm. I right. don't know why people buy passion fruits that are grafted because it's we, a nightmare. We did a display at Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show about... 12 years ago and we bought a grafted passion fruit put it into a 10 inch pot and we grew some of our own seedling seedling clones and we knocked that 10 inch pot out and we set the root ball on top of the pot and there must have been a thousand suckers going around (laughs) the inside of the pot and we just use that to show people what happens with the the citrus um, sorry with the suckering problem of, of the passion fruit. Now I had something to do with a little property over in Sylvan many many years ago and it took us about eight years to kill the understock out. It went under the bitumen, it went under a concrete shed. Um, It's a shocking thing to get rid of. Have we got any suggestion on how to get rid of harlequin bugs in a not too toxic fashion? Okay, the best way, if you, if you look at your harlequin bugs, some people call them stink bugs, you know the little ones that tow each other around, the randy little things, yeah, those <laughs> ones. Um, the best way that I have found over some time, if you look at where they congregate, it will always be in a dark place, it'll be under something. We use scrunched up newspaper in pots or in boxes, anything that'll do, and basically pop it out and change it. So, so burn, throw away your newspaper and you find your little harlequin bugs will go in there, they'll go to sleep, they'll be safe and secure and you'll get rid of them that way. Mm. Good tip. Well, that's all we have time for today, everybody. Nice to talk to you. Bye. Bye.